Hey, this is Jordan Sutton, pastor at Clear Path Church. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. We appreciate you listening. A little about our community. We love to come together. We love to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, we're a community trying to be led by the Spirit, just walking through Scripture together, walking through life together. If this message is an encouragement to you, bring some hope to your life at the end of the sermon. There'll be a little bit of information about how you can get in touch with us. Stay tuned and thanks for joining. that the enemy tells us about this. The lie that the enemy tells us about living in the midst of suffering and at times the awareness that God wants to bring breakthrough is that that you or I am the only one who are experiencing that. Like, um, the, the, the interesting thing about the way that in modernity we express suffering is we express suffering as, and there is an element of this that's actually true, the suffering that's uniquely mine. And there, there's, a, there's an element of that that's true. But the invitation of the gospel is to recognize that there is a Savior who took upon our hurt and took upon our suffering and actually shares in it. And then what are we called to do? We are called to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we're called to go and grieve with those who are grieving and mourn with those who are mourning. And there is this invitation of the gospel to not be alone, to not make your suffering just your own, but actually come to Jesus and come to community. And in that, our burdens are made less. But like, I don't know, there's just this tendency we have to... um, to run towards the narratives of our pain and to run away from the healing of Jesus in his word and in his community. And I just want to say that today. If, if you've found yourself increasingly more alone in the narrative of your, your pain, there, Jesus nor no one in the community should ever be dismissive of what you're experiencing. But it is, but there is a way in which I can cling to this and sort of justify my existence by, by the narrative of my pain. And like the, I'm just tell you this, the Lord says to you today, like, come to him and cast that burden before him. Because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Amen. I love somebody told me about that yoke. It's just like a reminder that the yoke is, you know, the oxen hooked up into to one deal. And that you're, it's like, if you can imagine, like, the largest Clydesdale in human history. Um, how many of you, how, have you heard the Lubalin uh, internet videos? <laughs> where the, where, this is, this is so much of a niche video. I can't somehow tie this in, but. There's this, he goes and he finds ridiculous comments on the internet and he makes funny songs about them. And there's this girl 
who's singing about her horse that's 35,000 pounds and how it broke her toe. And that ultimately, somebody was like, I think you may mean 3,500 because the world record horse is like 4,000 pounds. And she's like, you know, arguing. And so anyway, makes this ridiculous thing about it. But I had this picture in my mind, the largest animal you can imagine the largest, most powerful thing that you can imagine is yoked next to you carrying your burden. Isn't that incredible? Like, like if you imagine the way that, that, that an oxen would plow through, through like a, to, to till the ground, like you have infinite power, infinite love, God walking next to you to finish your work. So come to him. I'm going to talk to you about the end of the sermon, and then I'm going to talk about the beginning for a moment. I felt like the Lord wanted me to remind you, we got out of a season of prayer and fasting. And Lent is traditionally, although we're not making a major initiative towards it, Lent is traditionally a time of prayer and of fasting. And I just want to tell you that we'll come back and apply this to the text this morning. Um, or see this in the text this morning. But fasting is a way, as we were sitting there singing about the love of God, there is one thing singing about the love of God. There's another thing apprehending and feasting upon what is true about him. How many of you ever have a contradiction between what you believe about God and what you feel you believe about God? Raise your hand if you've had that contradiction. So like, this is the, this is ironically the, 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 where, you know, it fails for us, even though we intellectually know things sometimes, just the intellectual knowing of something can't instruct our whole being to feast upon that truth. And the reason that, the reason that Scripture calls us to fasting is because fasting is when you set aside feasting on everything else that is in your impulses, and you feast upon the Word of God. I'm going to preach on this in a minute, but Matthew 4 is our opening text for Lent. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Jesus has been fasting 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. And when the, when the tempter comes to him to ask him, um, why don't you turn this, this stone into bread? Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? Somebody shout it out. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I would say the most of, most of the way that we've situated our lives is to feast upon our impulses and desires, not on the word of God. And you know what I discovered in doing some fasting? Is just how much of that I'm doing. Just how much of my sustenance in life comes from all the things I want to do. And I just feel like, I'll come, I'll come back to this in, I feel like the Lord I wants to call some people this morning into a lifestyle of fasting, into a lifestyle of prayer. Like, I know it's, it's not something that you talk about every week in church, but I'm telling you, fasting and seeking the Lord in prayer, it brings breakthrough in our lives. And I feel like God is saying to somebody, like maybe you feel the conviction, the burning in your heart. God is saying to you, fast, seek me. And if you're like, if you're in a season where you don't know, like you don't sense his presence, like you don't, 
like sense his direction, I'm telling you right now, fast and pray and seek his face. Make that your priority. And you will, you will encounter him. All right. I'll, I'll come back to the beginning of the message, um, but I'll come back to this at the end as well. And, and I'll try to be brief because what time is it? Somebody shout out to me. Oh, okay. Um, we're starting Lent today, and I want to give you some context on why we do Lent as a church. Um, most people here didn't, some people here grew up with Lenten season as a part of their church, but most people here did not. Um, in fact, in, the, in our charismatic world, we write songs about how tradition is bad. We're like, we love to hate on tradition. And so it's like, it's not the thing that we grew up with. But I want to read to you something real quick from 2 Thessalonians 2.15. This is Paul, and he actually says this multiple times. Um, look at this. This is so awesome right here in Scripture. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by our word or our epistle. Okay. Now, let me make mention of this. I do not know that the tradition that they were taught was the tradition of doing observing Lent at these certain calendar dates a year. I, don't, I can't argue that. There are people that try to argue this tradition back to the first century, and I think that's hard to make. It's a hard argument to make historically. But here's the point. The, the, Paul does not make mention of what traditions he's talking about. He just says that there are some traditions, and I want you to hold to them. And I think that when tradition becomes bad is when it becomes aloof from the purpose of instructing our hearts towards purity in God and his love. Amen? But when tradition is good, it's something that draws us more deeply into the love of God. And so uh, Paul doesn't say what the traditions are. We just know that they have some and that they abide by them and that they're important. Um, but I want to mention a few uh, things that the tradition helps us with. First of all, we connect with the church historically and globally. Like the church for maybe 1,800 years, 1,700 years, has practiced some loose form of Lent, which its original focus was as people were coming into the faith, they could lead towards getting baptized ahead of Easter, and that these stories of Jesus would instruct them on the foundational stories of the gospel. And it also served the purpose of reminding everybody else the foundational stories. Everybody with me so far? Um, we, we also, I want to say one of the reasons, like I, it kind of started just out of curiosity, but for me the biggest reason is that we focus ourselves on the life of Jesus every year now. Like every year we focus ourselves on the life of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I would say the way I understood this in my upbringing, the way I read this verse, was that in prayer, it was like I was looking to Jesus spiritually. Does this make sense? Like, I would look to Jesus in my prayer. But I think this also means look at Jesus. Read the words and the life and the stories of Jesus who 
He demonstrates, he authored and finished the faith in his work as he did it on earth in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so our looking to him isn't just a with like in prayer, it's a looking to his life. Amen? How, how has your imagination of prayer at Jesus been shaped? What, is, what has shaped it? Like scripture. Scripture has shaped our imagination. The spirit breathes on that but scripture and looking to the story of Jesus. And so we do this because we're going to look at Jesus. Um, the last thing that I'll say, and then I'm, I'm going to move on, is that we get to focus not just on the tradition and doing something globally and historically, not just on Jesus, but we get to focus on the how the ways of God, how he works and specifically that God works in rhythms and in seasons. He works in rhythms and seasons. Um, Genesis 8, 20 through 22, this is as God is reaffirming his covenant to Noah. It says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered, excuse me, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And so when the Lord gets done saying to him, I won't destroy you, he says to them, there's a boundary, like the boundaries of winter, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, all these things will remain. They're not going to go away as long as the earth is here. And we see this right in the garden as the Lord separates light from dark and day from night and day from day and rest from work. Are you with me? There are seasons and rhythms and cadence to the work of God. We see it in everything. We see it in music. We see it in the way that we work. It's, it's just how God works. And we have a life because we live in a type of economy that is so far removed from the land that produces fruit, and we're so far removed from this economic reality that we live in a type of life that thinks that everything should be right now, and everything, all the good you know, things that we want to happen should happen this very moment. And this affects us spiritually. Um, amen? I mean, it's like, I'll tell you this. You know what? I'm going to read the scripture, and then we'll talk about it. Because um, I need to be quicker than my notes will allow. Then this is Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Just so you know, every year at Lent, we start on this text. So does everyone else. So not on this particular text, but one, one of the accounts of, of the story of Jesus going in to fast. All right, I'm going to read it. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now the tempter came to him and he said, if you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
Again, the devil took him up on the exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Okay. I want to I start us for a moment. I'm not going to comprehensively take this, teach this text, but draw out a couple of key things. But I want to start us for a moment on Matthew 4.1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There are two major themes of this text. Um, first is Jesus being led by the Spirit. And next is Jesus being tempted by the enemy. Jesus being led by the Spirit and led by the enemy. But I think the main theme is Jesus being led by the Spirit. That's where we start. And honestly, these are your two themes of life. You, got, you have two options of life. You can be led by the Spirit of God, or you can be led by the deception of the enemy. Right? Actually, this is the theme of the garden. Genesis 3, God has given man a perfect place of abundance and fruitfulness and obedience and communion with him. And there's two options. Be led by God or be led by the deceiver. Does this make sense? And so we're called to be led by the Spirit. And there's another phrase here that I want to jump off of. It says that Jesus was hungry. I like this phrase. Um, when, you, when you fast for a long time, your, your body stops being hungry. And then at some point towards the end, when you're going to eat again, you start getting excited about food. It's just like the nature of things, you know. Taco Bell commercials look amazing. And... Um, Always. They always look good, but they especially look good at the end of fast. And, <laughs> but like, here's the interesting thing, is that it doesn't actually say, I want to point this out, it doesn't actually say that Satan came to him and tempted him in the middle of his fast. It says, after he fasted 40 days and nights, the tempter came to him and said, turn this stone into bread. Isn't that interesting? Like, he's already completed the process. And we know that in order for him to keep living, like, he will actually have to come out of fasting and prayer and eat food. And we know that he eats at, you know, at occasions with his disciples. And we assume that Jesus had a sandwich every now and then. I don't think sandwiches were around then. But he, he I, I just want you to see this. He doesn't tempt him in the middle of the fast. He comes to him at the, at the end. If uh, Satan were to tempt me at the end of 40-day fast, it would be turning stone into a taco, not bread. But, but I want to I make this point that he's not being tempted around morality. He's not being tempted around, is this a sexual issue? Or is this an issue of anger or, or any of those things? He doesn't even tempt him in the middle of his fast. 
he comes to him after the fast is completed, and he tempts him with a loaf of bread, which is actually a good thing given by God, and symbolic of the communion. I, I just want to set all this up to say that we sometimes live life thinking, like, if I don't, if I don't, cheat, don't steal, follow the Ten Commandments, if I don't do all these things, and I do all these other things good, then that will be, that'll be a good life. But Jesus is not demonstrating in this, he is not demonstrating in this how to resist um, an issue of morality. He's demonstrating how to be, remain obedient in the Spirit, remain obedient to the Spirit's leading. Like God hasn't called you just to say no to things and yes to things. He's called you to be a person who is led by the Spirit. And we have to trust His, his process and His provision. What, the, what Satan was tempting him to do is to jump outside of the Father and the Spirit's process and provision for the moment. He's like, turn the stone to bread and like, let's, let's do this thing. But this wasn't an issue of morality. It was an issue of process and provision. Everybody say process and provision. And so Jesus makes a statement back to him and says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I, I want to keep saying this. Jesus is demonstrating his trust in the Father and the Spirit's process and provision. So the first thing that we're called to in Lent is to see that Jesus has demonstrated a willingness to follow the process and provision and that we are also called to do likewise. I want to re re reiterate this. We can be morally aligned to scriptures and live and still live a life that's basically driven by your desires and not God's. You can say no to all the right things and still be live, leading a life that's just based on your desires. And that will not be a fruitful life. Our innocuous whims and wishes can be the things driving us and usually are the things driving us. And what I realize in fasting is how much they are. Amen? Amen? And that will not be a fruitful life. It will not be a fruitful life. You can, to be just free from the obvious sins and not to step into a spirit-led life of obedience, it won't produce a life of fruitfulness. I want to keep saying this. So, so the scripture says that the spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. It doesn't say that Jesus desired to go not eat for 40 days. It doesn't say that he wanted to do this. In fact, there are multiple times in Scripture when Jesus stands before the cross in the garden. He says, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. So it's my inclination in reading into the text. It's a bit of reading in, but it's my assumption that he probably wanted to eat some in the next 40 days. In fact, the, the Scripture ends with, and Jesus was hungry. Not for tacos, but he was hungry. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Amen? 
And I, we've talked so much about this tension in Scripture as a church, it's nauseating. But we must, 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 must see this if we are formed into to maturity. God desires to fulfill your desires. He is a rewarder. But paradoxically, his, our desires are not always a great leader into good fruitfulness. If we live based on what we want in the moment, even if you reflect deeply and find this perfect desire, it's not often, it's not always at least, that that desire will lead you into fruitfulness. Jesus demonstrates what Paul says later when he says, those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Does it say those who are led by the desires that I found if I reflected after eight hours in prayer? How many times do we make that the priority? It says those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God, not those who are led by desires. Um, okay, keep going. Keep going. Uh, what does it mean to live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Um, this, this year, I mentioned this earlier, this year has been an incredible year of seeing God's mighty hand at work. And I felt my trust deepened so much like in the last five or six months. And this week, I was struggling with doubt and worry and even like a little bit of discouragement or frustration. And it's like, do you know what I do whenever I get in that is like, I'll start talking to God and my talking to God sounds like, all right, this is where I want to be and let me and this is what I want in my life and all the things that I want to happen. And so, Lord, here's how that's going to work out. I'm, I have path A that's like me sorting out with God how I'm going to get from A to Z. And you know what that normally does? It brings me into greater worry and anxiety. When I start using prayer as a moment to plan out the next 20 years of my life, it normally doesn't lead me. You know, there's a second option, which after like two days of going, well, God, I could do this thing, and I could do this thing, and I could do this thing, and this would fix this. And then, you know, I've got like this math equation, like, you know, a whiteboard full of things to figure out my life. And I just get more and more worried. And then the second path is, you know what, God? I trust you as the caretaker of my life. Peace just overwhelms me. We have to trust God for His provision and His processes. All the temptations here are simply about violating trust in what the Spirit is doing. And God is leading him to leading Jesus. The Spirit is leading Jesus to have specific obedience. Look at this. Look at all these. How many of you believe that Jesus was going to eat again? Okay. The next temptation is about him defying death by the power of God. How many of you believe he's going to do that at some point in his life? The, you know what the last temptation is about? Is about all of the world coming and worshiping him and all of them bowing down before him. How many believe that's also going to happen? So like all of these temptations are temptations of the things that are meant to happen and Jesus desires in a way that are in a way that's inappropriate, violating the process of God. 
And when we fix our mind on what we think is best for us and not being led by the Spirit, we run the risk of trying to run after the right things in the wrong process, not trusting Him. Amen? And what God is inviting us into is more like Jesus in this moment. It's just the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. I I don't know if it was like walking over to Capernaum and all of a sudden he was just like, I don't think it was like that. I think the Spirit was, you know, it's not like a magnet, you know, but the Spirit is speaking to him and drawing him. When we live a life that is able to be drawn by the Spirit of God, we will find ourselves in fullness. Everybody say process and provision. God, we have to trust his process, his provision, not our process and our provision to make our thing happen. Okay, so Jesus led up by the Spirit. Um, He's not speaking about blatant morality. He's speaking about specific obedience. He's speaking about specific obedience. I actually will come back and concede this point that your desires may indicate at times what life and fullness is meant to look like, but it is being led by the Spirit into a life of fruitfulness where God will meet your desires that are both known to you and known to you. Amen? All right, I'm trying to figure out how to cut back here. I think that be, that in our time, the reason we reiterate this so much is that we need a greater, much greater sense of God's willingness and ability to lead us and knowing that we can't understand the timing or how we're supposed to make everything happen. Like, we need a much, much, much bigger sense that God is faithful to lead us. And I, and I recognize that at times we have to just make decisions. That's, but I think we need an increasing faith that God will lead us as we seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 says that we must believe that He exists and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. The first reward I know He will always give, James 1, is that you seek Him for wisdom, He'll give it. And so, like, how many of you have some level of frustration in life? You want some level of answer for something. Maybe it's everyone, but just raise your hand. Like, I want you to think about this. God wants you to have faith that he will lead you by his spirit. Jesus demonstrates trust. He doesn't just demonstrate general obedience, which is like, love people, don't kill people. (laughs) He demonstrates specific obedience, in that at this time, at this specific moment, I'm going to be let out in the wilderness. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The beast is going to tempt me, and I'm going to say these three specific things to him. That's a level of specific obedience that he's called to, and most of our formation is going to be, in maturing, is going to be growing in our specific obedience of God, not just our general obedience. Amen? It's like when I start trying to figure out my life, everything gets really foggy. And how many of you remember as a kid when it's a winter day and like there's condensation on the windows and you take like your jacket and you wipe the condensation off so that you can see 
out the window as the car's going down the road. What happens when I come to feast on the word of God, when I come to say exactly what Jesus says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word. When I say, God, I need your word to lead me. I can't figure this out. When I come to feast on his word, it's like wiping away the condensation from a winter window. And I'm able to see. Amen? Um, the funny thing, I'm going to come back to fasting for a moment. Jesus is fasting. The funny thing or the irony about us continually feasting on our hungers. Jesus was hungry, right? Is there anything wrong with hunger? Is there anything wrong with wanting a taco? Is there anything wrong with me wanting to go watch a movie tonight? Let's expand hunger for a moment. Is there anything wrong with me wanting to watch a movie tonight? Is there anything wrong with the fact that Andrew and I really enjoy King of the Hill? <laughs> and we like to watch a show. Nothing wrong, maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> not every <laughs> not every want or hunger or desire that you have is necessarily wrong. It may have its appropriate place. But when what happens in fasting is we become confronted with this, re, this reality that man does not live on bread alone, but every word. And I realize that I'm feasting on a table of my wants and my wishes. And the irony is when we feast on the table that's unfulfilling, we can't, it's like the more we feast on it, we can, it's the less we can see how unfulfilled we are. We use all of these whims and wishes to actually help us cope with the fact that none of them make any sort of meaning to us. We live for lesser things and we use the lesser desires to help us feel less unfulfilled by the things that aren't fulfilling us. Does that make sense? That's a little bit confusing. The more you feast on the table of your innocuous wants, day in, day out, exclusively, the more you're unable, it's the fog on the window, you're unable to see out the window, you're unable to even clearly understand how, how disappointed and how disillusioned and how unsatisfying all these things are. Jesus calls, he's called out into the middle of the wilderness to demonstrate one thing. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I promise you, if you try to live on bread alone, on hunger or desire alone, you will not live. You will not come alive. Amen? This is why Matthew 6.22 says the, the, lamp is the, is the lamp of the body is the eye. And if the eye is good, your whole body is full of light. Let me just say this to you. I've, I felt, I didn't feel called to make a big focus on this yesterday, but I am this morning. 
If you will fast and stop living primarily on your hunger, and when I say fast, I'm going to be specific for a moment. You fast food, you fast entertainment, you fast the things that, that, you're, that are constantly driving you. If you'll fast and pray, you will see more clearly. I know this seems like a very specific way to start Lent, but I really believe this. And if you, have issue, if you have dietary issues that can't allow you to do that, f- find some way to not give in to your own hunger and whims all the time and seek the Lord. I don't do this all the time. I don't like, I'm not like fasting six days a week and preaching on Sunday and eating a meal, but I recognize that, that a lot of times, a lot more than we're willing to give credit, God wants to take us deeper into his heart, deeper into seeing clearly. And Jesus demonstrates it in the wilderness that there was nothing going to deceive him because he was feasting on the word, not just feasting on what his body wanted. Amen? In our life... We allow worries, thoughts, and ideas that aren't from God, God's best for us, slowly over time lead us away, and we must come back to Him. Repentance is a lifelong process. We need to keep turning our hearts to God. All right, I'm going to finish with that, and I want to read to you a poem that I wrote. And this poem... um, for me, it happened at the end of our church fasting time. And I went to a place that my grandparent, my grandfather, and his grandfather grew up in. And we've been going down to the land with our kids. And since I was a kid, since they were a kid, and there's a path that's formed. And um, every time I walk in these trees, it's like the Lord just uses it to refresh me, to make me new. It's like reminds me of the simple things of God. And that path had come overgrown. And so it had been not dealt with for years. And so this is the path, this is the poem I wrote as at the end of our fasting time, I felt like the Lord said, go clear that path. So here's the poem. I walked the path, the path that I had walked down many times before to clear branches and brush, thorns and limbs, dead and living from the ground. I used the old, those old tools, the tools Papaw carried as we walked hand in hand. He showed me how to clear the way. Dull and old were hoe and axe, but effective still to find the form trail amidst the overgrowth. My kids, too, would run and play on the old path and learned to hope. I left one tree unfelled to take my son and let him complete the job that will and must be done again. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that you're always calling us back to your way. It has to be done again and again and again. You call us to return to you. 
And I pray that you would, in this Lenten season, in this time of prayer and fasting, that you would just let our hearts return in joy to the story that you have put down of your son. Let us let go of the branches and the overgrowth that is in the path. And let us let you come and do the work. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode from Clearpath Church in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like more info to visit us on a Sunday morning or to subscribe to our newsletter, check us out at www.clearpathdallas.com. Follow us on Instagram at clearpathdallas. Thanks for listening. I just want to tell you guys that um, I think there's something more special in your worship than you probably recognize. And I say this as someone who's been here for a long time and haven't been here that much lately. Um, and I, I, I've noticed the last couple times that I've come, because I've been kind of here a week and gone a week, and when, I, when I'm here, the way that God moves my heart and the way that that overflows into my week throughout that next week. Um, there's something really unique here in, in you. Um, <clears throat> and I was just sitting here realizing, like, <clears throat> that when I come here and I worship with all of you, it feels like that there's some, in some way, that I encounter the glory of God in a way that, like, when I read about Moses and I read about how he went and... <clears throat> Y'all forgive me. I'm a bit weepy. I haven't, like, been in worship enough lately in, like, a corporate setting, and it's, uh, it's good for my soul. <laughs> but um, a, a, a bit like when Moses would go on the mountain and he would encounter God's glory... And then it would seem to be some period of time and it would fade, you know? And when I come here and I worship with all of you, it feels a bit the same way. Um, like, Dave, today I was struck by your bass playing. And you're a really good bass player. Um, but I also just see your heart come on it. Like, it's more than... It's more than vibrating strings, you know. And then I, I looked over and I saw Jason leading and I saw Genesis behind him. And like, I don't know, I just saw like a, a unique beauty here. And I, my attention was drawn to the back and I saw Vanessa just worshiping freely.
And I guess what I want you guys to know is that your worship matters. Um, your worship matters to me, and your worship matters to all the people that are sitting across the room from you looking at you. And I think a lot of times that we want to, uh, I think a lot of times we put a big divide between what it is to encounter God and what it is to encounter those who are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And I don't think that there's a very big divide there. I think it, whenever God's in it, then, then our worship becomes so un, um, in unity with him and intertwined with him. It just becomes kind of one big mess of God and your worship and your heart being poured out and God's heart being poured out. And so all I want to encourage you is don't underestimate your worship because it holds a lot of beauty and a lot of power for change. And, um, and don't underestimate gathering together and worshiping because there is a glory that fades as we get away from that. So let's just worship for, for God and for each other and just for purity and beauty and hope.